Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello again, my friend. Today's number that I'm going to give to you is 744. 744. That's how many people the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the people who decide the Oscars, invited to join its ranks this year. That's the most they've ever invited at one time. This means the Oscars will now also be voted on by people with such legendary movie careers as Terry Crews, Leslie Jones, Kate McKinnon, B.D. Wong, Betty White, and, of course, Lou Ferrigno. Honestly, out of that group, B.D. Wong sounds like Marlon Brando compared to the movie careers of the others. Obviously, the Oscars are trying to diversify their nominations, but does that mean handing out an Academy card to any person who's ever walked onto the set of a successful movie? I honestly cannot think of a single film that Betty White has ever been in. Anyways, that is a misguided attempt at equality. This is the Stream Police. The Stream Police Podcast is brought to you by OverdueReview.com. Looking for a Netflix recommendation that's worth two hours of your time? Or a forgotten album that's worth picking up on iTunes? OverdueReview.com. Better late. Hello again, my friend, and welcome to the Stream Police Podcast. I'm Clint Davis, the movies and TV editor at OverdueReview.com. And a little bit later on, we'll be joined by my friend and co-host, Andy Sedlak, our music editor at Overdue Review. Last week, of course, we were, or last month, I should say, we were joined together in the studio, and uh, we'll try to do that again for you sometime. Got some great feedback on that, especially doing the uh, little Facebook Live that went along with it. That was a good time, uh, and always good to see Mr. Sedlak. But today we'll be talking live via satellite, as usual. Um, welcome back. I am in my closet once again in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, it's it's sweltering hot in here as we begin July. Let me go ahead and light my stogie up, though. I'm going to make it a little bit more miserable slash a little bit more awesome for myself. All right. Good to be back in my own closet. Like I said, a little bit later on, we'll be uh, checking in with Andy. He's going to be talking, I know, a little bit at least about uh, Jay-Z and his new 444 album and the uh, exclusive streaming rights to that, which if you're like me, you still haven't heard the album yet because you don't want to fork over the money for a title subscription just to listen to one freaking album. I just don't, I don't know. I don't like holding the music hostage so you can get subscribers. I prefer the old days of just the album's dropped, you know, it's released. I get not putting it on Spotify 
because anyone can listen to it for free. I get holding off on Spotify for a month. I understand that. I think that also is a little bit dated uh, as to how people like to listen to music now. And Jay-Z's music is so popular anyway that uh, even if you put it on Spotify right away, he'd still make a killing uh, because of the number of streams that he would get. But I just, I don't know. I don't like holding it hostage for your own subscription service, and it's just, I don't know, just tacky to me. We'll see what Andy has to say about it a little bit later on. But let me start you out here. Uh, as I usually do start the show, last week I handed the reins over to Andy, and uh, he did a nice job with the West Wing theme song. This time, I'm going to take it back, and I'm going to take you to 1999 for my selection for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And my selection this time, my friend, is the lovely theme song from Curb Your Enthusiasm titled Frolic. This silly little song, I am not kidding you, and I am not being hyperbolic when I say to you, my friend, I think it's one of the most evocative pieces of music I've ever heard used on television. Because this song cannot help but bring a smile to your face. You could be having the worst day of your life, and you hear that little, uh, I don't know if it's a ukulele or a mandolin or what it is, but you hear those little that little strumming, and I, I don't care. You're going to smile. It's, it's going to happen. <laughs> The tune, like I said, is called Frolic, and it was written by a guy named Luciano Michelini. He's an Italian composer, and Larry David, the creator and star of Curb Your Enthusiasm, said that he heard this song playing in some local bank commercial years before he wrote the first episode of Curb. So he was just watching TV. Local bank ad comes on. He hears this song in the background. We've all seen those cheesy commercials with that stock music. And he heard this one, and he loved the song. He apparently never forgot the song, wrote down you know, what the commercial was, found it later, and made it the theme song to uh, his highly successful HBO series. The show itself is great also because it uses generic instrumental music beds as its score, which I think is very fitting because the show has such a lo-fi style. And Larry David himself is one of the most lo-fi guys of all time. I mean, that's kind of the joke with him. It's not fancy. He just picks stock music that you would hear in the background in commercials and plays it in his show, and it works surprisingly well. Curb Your Enthusiasm was highly anticipated due to Larry David's involvement. Of course, he was the co-creator of Seinfeld with Jerry Seinfeld, and Seinfeld was the biggest show on television in the 1990s. And this was the first project from one of the show's co-creators since it went off the air. The final episode of Seinfeld had aired just a year and a half before the first episode of Curb, which actually wasn't really an episode as we know it now. It was an hour-long special that aired on HBO in October 1999, which they then uh, decided to turn into a series. It was just going to be a one-off, one-hour special, but then they turned it into a show. I still think it's crazy to think that Curb Your Enthusiasm debuted just a year and a half after the final episode of Seinfeld aired. Um, to me, just there's like a chasm between these shows in my mind, but really it was like one after the other. They kind of popped up on TV. Now, Curb Your Enthusiasm also pioneered something that TV fans don't necessarily enjoy so much, but TV creators do enjoy, and that would be a loose production schedule. 
Some other shows have since adopted this. Uh, FX's Louie is probably the most notable example. Um, but from 2000 to 2011, eight seasons of the show aired. Then Larry David said in 2011 that the show was going on hiatus. And so we have not seen a new episode of the show since 2011. I mean, think about it. That's six years ago. But the ninth season is scheduled to air this year, so we'll finally get some new Curb. But, I mean, that's incredible to think about, right? So in, in the course of 17 years, nine seasons of this show will have aired. Can you think of another show that has that sporadic, you know, a, a production schedule? It's like once every two years, maybe I'll do a season. And that's because you've got a show that's essentially engineered, created by, um, and run by one man. So it's really up to him. He doesn't have a writer's room. This is all on Larry David. So if, he does, if he's not coming up with stuff, if he's not inspired, Fired, then you're not going to get any new episodes. And HBO has kind of let him uh, take as much slack as he's wanted to on the line. And I think it's really worked well for the show because the show's never really had, had to compromise. And the show's never really had down years because of that. But it is frustrating for fans because you never know kind of like when the next episode's going to come. Um, the show uh, has won, by the way, two Emmys out of 39 nominations so far. So it has been definitely a critical success. <laughs> But back to the song, Frolic itself has become a meme being used in satirical videos, uh, lampooning everyone from politicians to regular people, um, typically when that person is caught on camera making a less than happy face at inopportune moments, which is typically you know, how it goes for Larry on the show Curb Your Enthusiasm, just awkward moments, awkward as hell. And uh, th that's you know when you'll hear this song kind of crop up. There are a lot of great examples of it if you just search "Curb Your Enthusiasm" meme. But this song, this bouncy, whimsical song, that Larry David once overheard in a local bank ad, is my pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Frolic from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Just an instant, kind of an instantly recognizable and to me, a uh, legendary theme song because of its origin and uh, because of the way it's been picked up and used in popular culture. I really like, um, I really like that theme song. I've always really liked that theme song. I remember watching. I was young. I was like twelve years old, eleven years old when the first episode of Curb aired. We had HBO back then, and I used to, you know, kind of sneak it and watch shows. But I remember the ads for Curb that they would show all the time, like between movies. And I, I had watched Seinfeld a little bit. I kind of like knew that it was a huge deal, but I wasn't a big Seinfeld fan when I was a kid. I mean, you know, I didn't really get it. I thought it was funny, but didn't really get it. My parents didn't really watch it. It wasn't until years later that I, you know, really loved that show. But Curb, I remember watching the first episode when it aired. I watched it the night that it aired. And uh, I, I kind of got it. I got where Larry David was coming from because I was kind of like a neurotic kid as well. Um, and I understood his anxiety and kind of... Uh, um, you know, agreed with that and his whole thing where he didn't want to even do a comedy special. He just, it was too much anxiety for him. He just wanted to cancel and back out at the last minute. And I totally empathized with that and really enjoyed it. So I've always, I've always liked that show uh, since day one. It's kind of been like one of my, one of my favorite shows and have some fond memories watching it with my friends as well. All right, let's stick with HBO as we move on here during the stream police. Let's talk about a show 
that just wrapped up a magnificent three-season run. And I've talked about the leftovers before on this show. If you go back through the annals, you'll hear my review of uh, the first season of the show. I'm not sure if I did review the second season totally on here, but go back and check out my, uh, I think The Leftovers is in the title of that episode. I can't remember exactly when that episode aired, but uh, anyway, like I said, go back and you'll hear my full thoughts on the early you know, season of The Leftovers, and I was kind of immediately enamored with this show. Um, Leftovers, if you don't know anything about it, it was uh, co-created by Tom Parada, a guy who wrote a novel called The Leftovers, which the story of the first season is based on, and then it, the show expanded from there. But it's also co-created by Damon Lindelof, who co-created Lost. And he and Lindelof is really like J.J. Abrams is the guy people usually think of with Lost, but Lindelof's like the guy who engineered Lost into what it was. Abrams wasn't really around much after the first season. He became a big movie director um, and kept his name on the credits and I, I think, you know, had some definitely had a hand in producing the show and he wasn't completely absent, but it was Lindelof who was one of the guys that really, uh, I think he was the showrunner and he just ran that show uh, into the you know, kind of weird places that it went and the huge success that it was. So he's kind of been given an opportunity to, you know, create more shows, kind of do whatever he wants to in the TV landscape. And that freedom led to a show like The Leftovers, which to me is the closest thing to Lost uh, that I have seen on TV since Lost went off the air. And I actually think it's superior to Lost. I think it's a, a more fully realized show. It's more satisfying. The acting's better. Um, and it's just uh, more interesting most of the time. Um, but anyway, the show tells a story of uh, people that are become known as the leftovers because uh, suddenly one day in contemporary America, uh, I think it's 2% of the world's population disappears just suddenly without a trace. They just disappear. They're here one second. They're gone the next babies, old people, um, just whoever that people just disappear one day and it's 2% of the world's population. So it's not a huge amount of people, but it's, uh, it's a big enough amount obviously to be missed and so the people that are left on Earth are kind of wondering, what happened? You know, was this some kind of religious event foretold in books for generations? Was this some kind of punishment or was this some kind of random, you know, geographical thing that happened, some kind of space-related phenomenon? Who knows what it was that happened? Was it an abduction? There's all kinds of, you know, questions that go into what, uh, you know, what this was, what this disappearance was. Um, and the show follows, you know, this great group of characters uh, who are led by Justin Theroux and Carrie Coon as people that obviously were left over and they kind of travel around and uh, get more. We get a lot of information on their backstories and also uh, get more clues as to what it was that happened. But this show is not really about what happened. It's not about like, well, what made people disappear in the first season? It kind of feels like it is, but it's not really. It's about the characters left, you know, here on Earth and uh, the grieving that they have to go through with, you know, losing people. And I got to say, you know, you would think that this show would not be able to satisfy a question that big, but it does. By the time the third season was over and the third season was the final season and it just finished on HBO about a month ago, um, it's totally satisfying how they close it down. I, I loved the final episode of this show. Um, it's It goes right up there with one of the greatest, you know, some of the greatest finales. I have ever seen, including, you know, shows like Six Feet Under, uh, which Justin Thoreau was also on. Uh, but, yeah, it's just going to, I think, going to be one of those instant classic series finales. And they lean heavily on Carrie Coon, who was not really a TV or film actor before this, more of a stage actor. And, uh, I mean, she has become kind of like a bona fide, you know, name star among people who really love acting. 
uh, especially because she has since appeared in the third season of Fargo and did great work. Both of these shows were airing at the same time, and she did great work in both of them. But I can't wait to see what Carrie Coon does next. I'd love to see her lead a film um, and you know possibly get an Oscar nomination that I feel at one point will be in her future. But The Leftovers was just such a such a ride, and I was so sad to see it go because I really grew to enjoy following these characters. Not very likable all the time. In fact, uh, downright uh, unlikable at times, but always interesting. The acting was always spot on. The writing was great. Um, you know, if you like literary kind of symbolic television, this is a kind of show that you will really enjoy. And if you like lofty TV that tries to answer big questions, you know, about existentialism and everything else, this is a show that, it, that for you, it's, it's very lofty and it's, uh, it, it's ambitious. One of the most ambitious shows I've ever seen. I don't know if you are a part of this or a victim of it, but if this is real, if they've actually built this device, they're not sending people to some magical place to be with their loved ones. They're incinerating them. Oh, well, then I guess I am just wasting my breath, huh? Yes, you are. And I think you may be suicidal. Three go, one stays. Me. You know what the odds of that are? One in 128,000. What happened was arbitrary. It was purposeless. It wasn't my fault. I didn't do anything to deserve this. So no, Nora, I don't want to kill myself. I want to take some fucking control. There's some scary stuff in the third season uh, as well uh, as we follow, especially Carrie Coon's character. Well, really, and Justin Thoreau's character as well. Just a lot of play between life and death. What does it mean? Um, and I just have to give huge kudos to HBO uh, for never for not canceling this show. Um, obviously, you know, three seasons is a very short run, and I think the ratings for the show, which were never reportedly very high, um, played into played into that. But I think also this show didn't need more than three seasons. I mean, why why drag it out? If you don't need to, I think three seasons was a perfect arc for this show. All three seasons had distinct stories, had distinct new characters, new locations um, and interesting stories that were wrapped up by the time the seasons were over and by the time the series was over. Uh, and they just they, they kind of did it all, man. I, I really could not recommend this show more. If you have HBO now, go back and start The Leftovers and you'll breeze through it, too. Um, you'll want to just keep watching it. And I think there's 10 episodes for the first two seasons, eight episodes for the last season. So, I mean, essentially you're talking about an entire series that's about as long as one season of a, you know, drama that's on a network. So, you know, if you can't spend the time watching this, then I don't know what you're going to have time for because, it, like I said, it's a very quick watch and uh, it's it's – Going to go down as one of HBO's great shows, even though it'll probably be one of those that's remembered more. It'll it'll be one of those that's more like Oz, you know, than Game of Thrones or The Sopranos. Like, not everyone's going to be talking about The Leftovers, I think, when the sun sets on HBO. But it's certainly among people who watched it will be one of the favorite shows that they ever had on that network. So couldn't couldn't uh, recommend it more. Kudos to uh, HBO, to everybody involved in this. Again, the whole cast uh, deserves a SAG award 
for just ensemble performance because there really wasn't a weak link in the whole cast. And most of them were unknown actors, even Justin Thoreau, who had been in some stuff, but wasn't really a huge actor. He was more of a writer almost than an actor. Uh, he wrote Tropic Thunder, and uh, he was famous for being married to Jennifer Aniston, uh, but not really known himself as uh, as a name brand actor. And I think uh, this show, you know, put him out there for more people to realize that you know this guy's very talented. He's a not only a good writer, good uh, actor as well. So couldn't recommend the leftovers more. Really loved it all the way through. And it's so special when you get a season finale, a series finale that works on all levels. I mean, that's a special thing. You know how hard it is to do a series finale? I mean, I don't know how hard it is to make one, but I know how hard it is to watch one that just doesn't work. And this one worked just all the way through. Great job by everybody. So, again, uh, The Leftovers, three seasons of it, three brisk seasons, are streaming right now on HBO Now. My only complaint with the third season was that they did not have really any storylines involving uh, Kevin Garvey's son or daughter. And I was especially disappointed in that because Margaret Qualley, who played uh, Jill, the the daughter, uh, for the first two seasons on the show, was so great in that role. And I I loved her. I raved about her in when I reviewed the first season on The Stream Police in an earlier episode. Uh, just said how much I can't wait to see her in movies. And she has popped up now in a couple movies since the show started. And I don't know how much that played into the fact that she wasn't really involved in the third season at all. Uh, but it was sad. I think she was sorely missed. I, uh, I was, it was a shame to not see her really at all in the third season. And I think it was very noticeable. Uh, but other than that, you know, small complaint, just a very good send-off for a show that I think went under the radar for a lot of people for three years on HBO. All right, speaking of shows that recently wrapped up three seasons, uh, let's talk about Better Call Saul on AMC. Now, of course, Better Call Saul is going to continue. It was just renewed for a fourth season, which I read, and I'm like, why is that even news? I mean, I guess I just assume that this show they're going to let run out, and it's highly rated. I think it's uh, it's usually in the top five of cable shows uh, every week. But still, you know, it is news when a show gets renewed. So I saw that, and I was thinking, like, oh, my God, like, is there a chance that Better Call Saul could be canceled? Not that I've ever read, so don't, you know, go thinking that. But anyway, this is a show that through three seasons, to me, just keeps getting better and more interesting and darker, so much darker. Like, if you watched Better Call Saul from the start, and by the way, the first two seasons are on Netflix right now. The third season will be on Netflix uh, in a few months, probably. I don't know, maybe before that. I'm not sure how soon they're going to get it, but uh, the third season just wrapped on AMC, and you might be able to stream it, uh, it through your cable provider if you've uh, you know got a subscription to AMC as well. But uh, this is one of those shows that I like to watch while it's on. Just, you know, I watch it week to week. I think it's a very – I don't consider it really like a binge show because I just think, you know, there's it's it can be very slow at times. It's very deliberately paced. That's the code word that they like to use for a show that is slow. Um, and it's, you know, all about character development. It's character study, uh, no question. We know where this character ends up, Jimmy McGill, uh, played by Bob Odenkirk, who becomes Saul Goodman, the uh, morally – Shaky. I guess he's probably morally bankrupt, not morally shaky. Uh, attorney uh, to all the sleazy criminals in Breaking Bad. We know where he ends up. We know where his legal career takes him, despite his uh, his his high goals and just wanting to be liked by everybody in Better Call Saul. We know where he ends up. So that's not really what's interesting here, but it is interesting to see the transformation of this character. Um, and it just continues to, like I said, get darker. We're getting closer and closer to Saul. We finally saw shades of Saul. We even heard his name come up 
in uh, the third season. And the third season paraded out a few more Breaking Bad character cameos, which uh, people can complain about and say that they're unnecessary. But I think they are necessary because this show does lead right in to Breaking Bad. It's not like uh, a show that's just kind of related in the same universe and it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's it's set in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You know, I mean, how big a city is that? It's it's It makes sense that people involved in the underworld in that town would run into each other from time to time. So when you have meetings between Gus Fring and, and Mike Ehrmantraut, it makes sense to me. Um, and then, you know, we get to see Lydia. She kind of comes back. And a couple other Breaking Bad characters that uh, were... Uh, fan favorites on the show that I won't spoil here who pop up uh, throughout the uh, latest season of Better Call Saul. Just, but again, this show is so well written, and the symbolism that's in the frames is so well done. the The character development is so solid, and watching Bob Odenkirk and Ray Seahorn, who plays Kim Wexler interact with each other is one of my favorite things week in, week out. And continuing to watch Jonathan Banks play Mike Ehrmantraut, who's just got to be one of the most beloved characters in television history, despite being kind of, I mean, he's not a bad guy, not really in any way. I mean, he kind of always takes, whatever he does is the right thing. But I would say like one of the most trusted characters, one of the most dependable characters in the history of TV. Who doesn't like Mike? I mean, Mike is just, uh, if you call him to do something, he's going to get it done. And he's going to get it done the right way. And, uh, I mean, you're not going to have any complaints afterwards. So it's it's just fascinating and fun to watch these characters. They're just they're, they're good characters, and, and watching where they're going to go, are they going to disappear, uh, it's, it's unknown. And this show was packed full of some big surprises as well, uh, especially in the way it ended. Uh, what are the implications for that going to be for the future, especially uh, for Chuck? And uh, it's just it's a show that, once again, continues to fascinate me. And if you like the Breaking Bad universe, you're probably already watching Better Call Saul. But if you're not, for whatever reason, you really need to be um, because uh, I think you will really enjoy it. If the stuff you liked about Breaking Bad was kind of watching Walt go from this mild mannered chemistry teacher to being the worst guy, um, one of the worst characters that we've ever seen on TV. And by worst, I mean, you know, just deplorable human being in every way. If you enjoyed that, then that's why you need to watch Better Call Saul. Now, if the stuff you liked more about Breaking Bad was the action, um, there is a lot of intrigue in Better Call Saul whenever we see Mike, but that's not really what this show's about. If you liked more of the action and you like the crime stuff, you're not going to like this show so much. Um, but if you liked it for the character development, then I think you're really going to enjoy it. Um, and in some ways, I really do. I think Better Call Saul is better than Breaking Bad in some ways. Um, is it going to be as legendary as Breaking Bad was? No, there's no way it's going to be. It just doesn't have the over-the-top moments, the like gasp-worthy things that would always happen in Breaking Bad. It doesn't have that, um, and it's probably not going to have that. But it's just such a well-built show, and for a spinoff, it's really remarkable uh, how good this show has been. I've really enjoyed it, and um, it's, it's through th three seasons right now. Like I said, third season should be coming on Netflix pretty soon. But right now, meanwhile, you can catch up on the first two seasons uh, there on Netflix. And again, I'm going to bang the drum and say that I think Ray Seahorn should at least be nominated for an Emmy um, for, you know, a lead female actor in a drama series. And she may need to win this thing because she, before it's over, I, I hope she does win one uh, because she has just been so understated, so good. And this is a true, you know, television performance. This is not 
one of those performances that's built in a day. It's a performance that's built over episodes and episodes, seasons and seasons. And uh, I love the work she's done. She's been so fascinating to watch. So Better Call Saul, again, airs on AMC. It is uh, during, it's in the middle of its season three to four hiatus right now. Uh, but the first three seasons will be available on Netflix for you. It's not in my interest for Hector Salamanca to die at this time. Who is he to you? An associate of an associate. Hmm. How very specific. Who is he to you? We had a disagreement. He threatened my family. I'm not going to let that go. But you had let it go. You'd taken his money. Your family was no longer in danger. And yet, still, you robbed his truck. Shouldn't that have settled the matter? Most men would have walked away. But instead, you made an attempt on his life. I understand that a civilian found the driver after you robbed the truck. Hector murdered this civilian. Correct? He wasn't in the game. I can't allow you to kill Hector. All right, final show I want to touch on here before I toss things over to Andy. I... uh... And I don't want to spend way too much time talking about it. I think this show has uh, it's generated a considerable amount of buzz. But The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu just wrapped its first season, starring Elizabeth Moss from Mad Men and uh, Top of the Lake. I mean, she's just a great actor. And hopefully this will be the show that finally gets her her Emmy. Now, that's the thing with, like I was saying, Ray Seahorn. Ray Seahorn's going to go up against. now, And Ray Seahorn may be considered a supporting actor, honestly. She's probably not a lead. So she might be fine, but she's not going to go head-to-head with Elizabeth Moss. But I think this is probably Elizabeth Moss's year at the Emmys. Um, and, I mean, she's definitely she's going to be up probably against, like, Claire Foy from The Crown uh, and a few others. But I think the work that she's done in Handmaid's Tale uh, is finally going to get her that Emmy she's been overdue for. Um, even if you don't think she was like she was doing the best work of her career, she's she's good in this show, and I think this show is good. But man, it really lost steam over the course of the one season. I just think, um, and I, again, I talked about this last uh, or a couple times ago that I have never read the book. My wife loves the book, and I've talked to a few people that really like the book since I first talked about it here on the show. And all of them kind of agree that uh, the show is just inferior to the book because, it, you know, when it breaks off from the story is when it be, gets a little shaky, and it seemed like they were doing that a lot in the first season. And, of course, they're going to stretch this show now out to multiple seasons instead of it being a miniseries, as a lot of people assumed it would be, you know, based on a novel, not a series of novels. So they're going to go off book now, and people are not necessarily expecting the best from that. But I don't know. Um, you know, TV has, has proven to be a wonderful medium for great storytellers and we'll see what kind of writing they're able to do and just they got to not focus the show on on uh Offred's, you know real husband who's still out there alive somewhere they just they, they can't make the show all about him uh, i think they're going to lose a lot of viewers they're going to lose a lot of fandom if they try to do that so hopefully they're not stupid enough to try to make this show about a male character now uh, as it goes on, but it's an interesting show. It's it's like a heartbreaking premise. It's almost too hard to watch. I almost feel like I'm I'm not going to watch another season of this show because th- I get like no joy out of watching it. Whereas with a show like The Leftovers, it's a definitely got its big time downer moments. It's more down than up most of the time. It's a lo- largely focused on human sadness and grieving. But I feel like there's so much joy behind that show because of the wonder that it presents and 
the uh, questions that could be answered, and I really do think the acting's top-notch. Whereas with Handmaid's Tale, I think the the setting is so depressing. The storylines are so depressing, so bleak and hopeless. The look of the show is somewhat interesting, but again, it's pretty bleak, pretty gray. Everyone wears the same costumes all the time, so there's not much really to look at. The music in the show's okay. Um, sometimes it's a little ham-fisted, I think, with what they're trying to say. They try to put too much attitude in the show where it doesn't really need it, um, and it feels kind of stilted that way. Sometimes I feel like the show feels forced more than I would like it to. So I don't know, but it's a first season, and as I've said many times, first seasons are usually the worst seasons when you're talking about big dramas because they're trying to settle themselves you know, out and shake themselves out and find their feet. But we'll see where Handmaid's Tale go- goes. I don't know. I mean, from here on out, like I said, it's probably going to be mostly off-book um, but uh, they did announce that Alexis Bledel will be coming back for the second season, which is a surprise for anyone who watched the first season, so I don't know if that means more flashbacks or uh, what it's going to mean, but she was great, and I'll uh, you know, I'll kind of enjoy her being in anything. So uh, season one of Handmaid's Tale is all f- ready for you right now at Hulu, and it'll stay up there. It's their original show. It's been a great success for Hulu. It's got a ton of buzz. Um, it's probably going to get them their first you know, Emmy nominations and could get them their first Emmy win. It's probably going to be nominated for best drama series, even though that's always a stacked, uh, that's always a, uh, a stacked category, but that would be huge for Hulu if it was. And I'm sure it probably netted them a few subscribers and we'll see what they can do from here. Can they have multiple good shows? You can't just have one. You got to have several. Um, but, uh, this has been a huge success for Hulu. And again, I, I like the show. I think it's well done, well made, well acted, um, and they went for the jugular. They didn't make it PG-13. They went for an R rating. Um, but sometimes, like I said, just feels a little a little forced for me. They're trying a little hard to, you know, be like uh, to be like the, the powerful feminist show. And sometimes, like I said, just feels a little transparent. But we'll see where it goes. Like I said, first season of Handmaid's Tale right now on Hulu. The accused stand charged with gender treachery in violation of Romans chapter 1, verse 26 by his word. And you swear by his name that the report you have submitted is the truth entirely? Yes, I do so swear. Then, in the name of God and his servants here on earth, the accused are hereby found guilty. Martha, 6715301, you are hereby sentenced to the common mercy of the state. And you, handmaid 8967, your existence is an abomination. True justice would see you sent to an eternity of suffering. But God has seen fit to make you fruitful, and by that we are bound. Handmaid 8967, you are sentenced to redemption. Sentences will be carried out immediately. But I love Elizabeth Moss, man. I, I really like Top of the Lake. Loved her in Mad Men. Can't believe she didn't win an Emmy that whole time she was on that show because Peggy Olsen was the most interesting character on that show by a mile. Uh, Much more interesting than Don most of the time. All right, I'm going to toss things over to Andy. We'll see what he's got going on, and uh, I'll come back and and, and chat you up a little bit more. I'm going to talk about some TV shows I was a little bit cooler on this season, ones that I have liked a lot in the past but didn't like so much in their latest seasons. And also I'm going to talk about a movie that I just saw in theaters that I absolutely loved, and uh, I've got a question for you. What's your favorite movie soundtrack of all time? We'll get to that in just a bit. Uh, But go ahead, Andy. Take it away. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Get the friggin' word out about this show. Our numbers are down, which I, I God, I cannot believe it because this thing keeps getting, well, I think it keeps getting better and better. And, you know, I had a blast during the last uh, episode. Clint and I did the podcast together for only the second time or whatever it is, over 40-some episodes. And he uh, proceeded to give it this really great edit so that it actually sounds like we managed to stay on topic over the course of this uh, this thing, which is is amazing. So if you haven't heard it, look it up. Give it a listen. Uh, it turned out to be one of my favorite episodes. Uh, you know, Jesus, we we just we had fun, and I think that comes through. Not manufactured fun, like actual fun. Uh, now I want to start this episode by talking about pressure. No, not Billy Joel's pressure, but pressure in general. And in music, the pressure is almost never greater than when an artist gets his or her first brush with success. Because success is a double-edged sword. The upside is that you've, you've grabbed that carrot that's been dangling in front of you. And you can feel good about that. The downside is that feeling begins fleeting almost immediately and when you get back to work you're dealing with a deadline and you're dealing with expectations you're dealing with pressure look in 2013 lord released a song called royal she put it out in march and by october it was the number one song in the united states i cut my teeth on wedding rings in the and I'm not proud of my address In a torn up town No postcode envy But every song's like gold teeth Grey goose tripping in the bathroom Bloodstains, ball gowns, trash in the hotel room We don't care We're driving Cadillacs in our dreams But everybody's like crystal made back Diamonds on your timepiece Jet planes, islands, tigers on a gold we don't care. We aren't caught up in your love affair. Yeah, we're talking about Lord here. At the time, she was only 16 years old, and almost immediately, the cover versions of this song started popping up. I mean, they were popping up everywhere. Songs like Gold Tooth, Grey Goose, Tripping in the Bathroom, Blessings, Ball Gowns, Trash. 
fashion hotel room. We don't care. We're driving Cadillacs in our dreams. But everybody's like whistle, made back, diamonds on the ground, beach, jet plane, island, cycles on the gold leaf. We don't care. We are loving the love affair. Big names who were all over this, like Ed Sheeran. My friends and I, we've cracked the code. We count our dollars on the train to the party. And everyone who knows us knows that we're fine with this. We didn't come for money, no, no. And even the boss. And every fucking song's gold teeth, Gregor's tripping in the bathroom. But stains, ball gowns, treasure in the hotel room. I don't care. I drive a Cadillac in my dreams. And everybody like Crystal made back diamonds on your timepiece. Jet planes, islands, tigers on a gold leash. I don't care. I'm not caught up in your love affair. So the song is big. Uh, it's number one song, and, and keep in mind, when I look this up, there have been over 60 artists, 60, there have been over 60 artists who have had a number one song and then never had another hit, like, never had another hit ever. So, it's a big situation for anyone to be in. She was a teenager. She's from New Zealand, but if she was a citizen of uh, the United States, she wouldn't even be allowed to vote. And this is where the pressure comes in. You've got everyone's attention. You're getting feedback from all corners of the universe. What's your next move? Well, after a little wait, we now know. It's this. But I hear sounds in my mind. Brand new sounds. Green Light. It's the uh, first single from Lord's new record called uh, Melodrama. That is a number one record. Uh, let's hear a little more of it. good right first of all it's got a, a good sturdy title the song builds but it doesn't waste time doing it and it's got that that kind of that shout along chorus it may not be as striking as royals but in some ways it's a better song because for as striking as royals was let's be honest it was a little preachy it was a little stiff the song's got energy makes you want to dance and 
it somehow makes the artist a little more relatable. She's granting interviews now, like she never did before. And aside from being genuinely interesting to listen to her discuss her music, she seems like likable. I think the most thrilling part is we'll be in the studio. All of a sudden, it will just... The light turns on and you know what it is that you're working with. And every... I remember that moment on every song I've ever, you know, put out. And but I remember it on Royals. I remember it on Greenlight. Before I thought she was kind of like this weird Bjork type of chick. She's charming. Who knew? This is tough to pull off. Look, um, very difficult. Glance over at uh, uh, Ray Lynn, a country artist. She had a big hit in 2014 with a song called God Made Girls. It achieved the requisite feats of the country music industry. It was certified gold and made into the top ten and came within shouting distance of cracking the pop top 40. That's tough for a country artist to do. Her most recent single has done nothing. (laughs) You'll occasionally hear it uh, on country radio. I think it's called uh, Love Triangle. But you're not going to hear it much. She supposedly uh, has another song coming out soon. And you see that she's in a very different place than Lord. At only 23, Ray Lynn is trying to climb back up the charts. Everybody has a different experience. And it's tough to make contact with the ball your first two times at plate. So brutal. I'm not sure what business you're in now. But it's got to be more forgiving than the music business. Remember this song? Who let the dogs out? The Baja Men. Oh, yes. Hit single, hit album. Not just a hit album, but triple platinum. Even won them a Grammy. Now, if you're in that group, you have to feel like you're on top of the world at that point. Big time commercial success. You would at least feel like you now you like you have a buffer, a little padding, a little more room to work with. Then just two years later, their next album did nothing, not even close. Looked it up, peaked at number fifty-seven. Big time bust. They never flirted with pop music ever again. Lord might be a special artist. Yeah, she's handling the expectations. She's handling the pressure. Very well. Not everybody is so fortunate. You know, not everybody is is like Lord or your big, big, big time artist, which I think I think she could be. Let me talk about a big time artist. I'm gonna switch gears just a little bit. Not a little bit. I'm gonna switch gears a lot. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna talk about Jay Z. He's got new music. The album is called four forty four because he wrote the title song at a quarter till five in the morning. You probably heard about this. He admits to infidelity. Whoa, my friends. Fireworks going off before the 4th of July because Jay-Z is dropping truth bombs about Beyonce cheating and other women. And if my children knew, you did what with who? What good is a menage when you have a soulmate? You risk that for blue? No ID produced it. And uh, there are a lot of big themes on the record. He, he announces that uh, his mother is gay on a song called Smile. Uh, he advocates for uh, black entrepreneurship. Uh, there's the, uh, the issue of race, which, which he's addressed before. Damian Marley is featured. Frank Ocean is featured. His daughter, Blue Ivy, featured again. 
This record sounds like the real deal, but I haven't heard it because it was re- released uh, exclusively to the title streaming service. Title. Better sound is better everything. The no, sound really, is it, a big thing, right? I mean, they, 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 want, they want people to believe that you don't care about sound and quality. You know, they want you to believe that. Like, we don't care if it's hi-fi or not, but people spend hours and, and months in studios mixing their sound and, like, really crafting the sound, and they want, you know, people to hear. Launched in 2014, supposedly has about 600,000 paying users. I am not one of them. So, so the day uh, the record came out, I'm reading these, these things, I'm reading these reviews, and the record sounds good, and I'm, I feel like I could be into it, and I'm like, great, great. Now, you know that I'm not one uh, to refrain from jumping to conclusions, my friend. So I'm over here like, you know, these streaming services, man, you watch because soon enough, man, everybody's going to be signing these big freaking deals and releasing music exclusively from this service or that service. Soon enough, you watch. There's going to be like 10 or 20 streaming services, and they're all going to have this exclusive shit, and I'm not going to hear it because I don't have streaming service X and on and on. But not so fast, Andy. While I'm in the middle of my like mental uh, bitch session, I come across an article called Will Jay-Z's New Album Be the Last Streaming Exclusive? <laughs> the Last. A couple hours later, I get an alert on my phone that says the record will be exclusive to Tidal for only one week. Then it's going out to the major streaming services, the ones that, that you and I have. Because let's be honest, I, I doubt you have Tidal. I don't have Tidal. I doubt you do. Here's the thing. The point in exclusive releases was uh, to get people to sign up for new streaming services. But by now, everybody's kind of got the service that they use. Like, like I've got Amazon Music. I like it. I'm comfortable with it. I'm probably not going to change. So, so people really aren't going to sign up for a new service to get one record or to get access to one record. And that means that artists don't get their music out to as many people. And that comes at a time when albums are bringing in less money anyway, which just makes it, you know, unacceptable. Does this make sense? The way that we consume music is a big deal uh, because the way that we consume it is also kind of the way that we're led to new songs and new artists that we haven't heard before. Um, So let me ask you. Do you think that exclusive streaming releases are on their way out? Or do you see it going the other way? Do you see the more big deals being signed and there will be only and there will only be more things like this in the coming years? Do you have any feelings one way or the other? Do you have a dog in the fight? Do you have skin in the game? Email me. Sedlakjournal at gmail.com. S E D L A K. The word journal all squished together at gmail.com. As you know, friends, that we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. Each week I give you five new songs to add to our evolving stream police playlist. The playlist is up on Spotify. All you have to do is search stream police. All right, here we go. These are all going to be rap songs. First, we have a pair of tracks from Lil Wayne. They're both off of the card of four. First, it's Blunt Blowing. Blunt Blowing. 
Then it's how to hate. I had a red bone, but she be tripping though. All that bullshit is for the birds. She was pigeon toe. She used to always say fuck my niggas. And when I went to jail, she fucked my niggas. We're going to move on to Dre. This is uh, Been There, Done That. It's all about the D.O.E. So what funny is the root? I want the whole damn tree. Ain't trying to stick around for Illuminati. Got to buy my own island by the year 2G. Since way back, I've been collecting my fee. With the 48 tracks in the M.I.C. Got a palace in the hills overlooking the sea. It's worth eight, but I only paid 5.3. In D12's fight music. Fight music. I'm a villain that loves scuffles. It won't hesitate to box you again with swollen knuckles. I'm like that. Catch a hater like bed traps. Blow his wig back right in front of the referee. I snatch a freak. Bump you and won't speak. If you step on my feet, you get your own drink. Eliminated my shriek just for talking. Came back and rubbed up his paw bears and made them drop his pocket. Fight music. These bees are swinging and stinging them. See all these people when I step in the club, I'm bringing them. And finally... I love this song. It's Mastermind by Nas. Play it cool. That's the old school rule, man. Keep your ears to the streets. You'll never lose, man. Make your enemies believe there's love there. Cousin Wall believe it's all fair. Rock them to sleep. Shots in your Jeep. And you ain't never know the plot was for me. It's for my mastermind. Sees it coming before it comes. Mastermind. Before he go to war, he count as one. Mastermind. Everything planned out perfect. In case y'all niggas got to get murdered. A mastermind. Sleeps at night real easy. A mastermind. Cause everything he does is by the book. A mastermind. Never do a thing irrational. Lives forever. These tales are classical. That's it, guys. Thanks so much. Behave yourself. Stay out of trouble. Do your best, anyway. <laughs> All right, see ya. All right, thank you very much, Andy. I know uh, this is a topic that Andy could definitely get behind, and I'd love to know his pick for this. But as I said before I went to break, I wanted to know from you guys what your favorite movie soundtracks of all time are. And I'm not talking about the score. I'm not talking about John Williams, you know, his, his scores that he's written for Jurassic Park and Star Wars and everything else. I'm talking about the soundtrack, um, just the music used in the movie. And it doesn't have to be the, the necessarily the soundtrack record. Just a movie with great songs in it. What are your favorite choices? I expect to hear some Quentin Tarantino picks. Reservoir Dogs has always jumped out to me as one of the best movie soundtracks of all time. Pulp Fiction obviously has a very good one as well. Uh, and Jackie Brown really probably has um, one of his best soundtracks that he's ever put to a movie. But uh, I want to know from you guys, uh, what are your favorite movie soundtracks? And I bring that up, and I'll talk about mine next time uh, on the show after I hear some of yours. I bring it up because I just saw a movie that had one of the greatest soundtracks I have ever heard in any film, and it just came out. And that, again, sounds hyperbolic, but it's not, and I'll tell you why. Baby Driver uh, is Edgar Wright's latest movie. He's the guy who directed Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead, and he was going to direct uh, Ant-Man, but then he had a disagreement with Disney, and so he ended up quitting the movie, and, man, how great could that movie have been if Edgar Wright had done it? But instead, we ended up with kind of like the generic, crappy Marvel movie that we that we got there. But Baby Driver, what a fun movie. This is a film starring Ansel Elgort from uh, The Fault in Our Stars. little uh, teen heartthrob action there for you. As this kid who uh, becomes a, a, a driver, a getaway driver, for these, uh, for these bank robbers, 
and they don't just rob banks, but for this like kind of heist crew, he ends up being their driver because he owes a debt to this powerful guy played by Kevin Spacey. So he does some driving jobs. He's going to get out of it as soon as he's paid it off. You've heard that story a hundred times before. This movie's interesting because this kid, all he does is drive. He doesn't take part in the robberies. He always has his earbuds in as well. Always is listening to music, and it's explained in in uh, universe it's not just because he's a young guy and he can't be without his earbuds it's because he suffers from ten, uh, tinnitus or tinnitus i don't know i've heard it said both ways uh where you hear that you have like a constant ringing in your ear and he got it because he was in a bad car wreck when he was a kid so he has to listen to music to drown out the ringing that's constantly in his ears so uh the, the movie uses this to great effect by making the whole film just a constant soundtrack. I mean it's there's almost never a scene where there's not music in the background. That's because he like always has at least one earbud in. And as they fall out, the music goes away. So, you know, we're essentially in this kid's head and his name by the way is Baby. Um that's his nickname anyway. So we're in his head the entire uh the entire movie and we're listening to the music that he's listening to. And it just works really well. Um, it sounds gimmicky, but it, it's not. And it works really well because the music is so great. And they, they avoid using cliches is what I love about this. This is a driving movie. But we don't hear any of like, the played out, you know, Steppenwolf or Highway Star, Deep Purple. Like all the classic rock shit that you always hear in movies when there's like a high-speed driving scene. Um, we don't give me some love in Spencer Davis group. We don't hear that kind of stuff. Every song like avoids being a cliche in the soundtrack. It's it's all just totally just different things. Um, we got John Spencer Blues Explosion. We've got the Beach Boys. We've got some Dave Brubeck. We've got the Commodores, T Rex, Beck. Uh, I mean, it, it Martha and the Vandellas. A soundtrack that crosses genres, crosses eras, everything. Young MC, Queen, Barry White. There is a little golden earring, which is okay, a little bit. Uh, cliche, but the way they use it kind of subverts being a cliche because he hears it on an FM radio, so it's one of the few songs that he doesn't pick himself. But the kid like sets his own soundtrack on all these old school iPods for whatever chase is happening, and he has to sync the action up with the music. He's almost, you know, like uh, it's like he he has this weird tick himself where he'll, he'll make people like pause and wait until a certain moment in the music to let them do something. So it all has to sync up the right way in his own head. It's just fascinating. It's a lot of fun to watch. And you can tell Edgar Wright and the crew uh, had a blast making this movie, putting it together, putting this soundtrack together. I really enjoyed it. It's a, it's a fun watch. It's high octane. Um, the characters are interesting. They've got heart. They're not just generic criminals. And they're all well played, man. John Hamm goes completely against type. He does not play like the suave, smooth, successful guy. In this movie, he plays like this sleazy-looking, tattooed, um, you know, bad guy. This this robber um, who is in love with a woman, and then, you know, something bad happens, and so he kind of loses it. And to see John Hamm really cut loose and lose it, it's great. I mean, it's like watching Don Draper really go on, like, a coke bender or something like that, which is something I think we all would have loved to see at some point during Mad Men. But um, it's it's just a fun cast, too. Jamie Foxx does some really good work. You almost you know, like can't take your eyes off of him. Lily James from uh, the Cinderella reboot uh, does a very nice job. And, and there's a young lady in the movie named, I think it's... Isa Gonzalez or Elza Gonzalez. I'm not sure how you say her name, but um, she did really great work. She plays Darling. She's like the love interest 
of John Hamm's character, and I just I thought she was magnetic, man. I, I think this is a girl we're going to see uh, around a lot. She was she was great, man. Just you can't take your eyes off of her when she's on frame, and that's for good reason. I mean, she's just like I said, just magnetic and really good, really natural in this role. And I looked into her, and she's pretty much like a new actor. Not really ha- hasn't really done anything. So uh, once again, it seems like she's uh, she's a natural, kind of born for this kind of film playing like a badass. So uh, Baby Driver right now is in theaters. Definitely recommend you go and see it. If you love music, it's a must-see. And if you like stunt driving, you'll love it as well. The stunt driving is second to none. It's fantastic. Um, The chases are very well orchestrated, very well directed by Edgar Wright. But that music just steals the show. The soundtrack is is insane. It's so good, so diverse, and uh, it's, it's really, really well done. Something really special when you get music this good. In an action movie especially, it could just crank the action along. I love it. So, once again, I recommend going and checking out Baby Driver in theaters. Tequila! This shit is bananas, dog. Tequila. Aren't you the lucky one? That's right. You tell him, baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's some Oscar shit right there. You're damn right. I feel like I've just been raving today. Raved about the leftovers, raved about Better Call Saul, raved about Baby Driver. Let's talk about something that I was a little bit cooler on. Uh, this year in television. Two shows that I really have loved all the way through just uh, finished up a couple seasons that I was not, I just was not crazy about. First off, Veep on HBO. They just aired their sixth season, and I've raved about Veep before on this show. I've called it the best comedy on television. Many people have called it that. It's uh, won a plethora of Emmys and been nominated for even more. Uh, But I just did not love the sixth season of this show. And I, you know, call it a failure on my part. I'm not really sure why. I, To me, I felt like I was getting lost a lot in this season. This show's always dizzying anyway. The jokes come at such like a, a rapid pace, a machine gun pace, that it's hard to keep up with them all. And I watch everything with subtitles on anyway, but I feel like you have to watch this show with subtitles on because, you know, most of the time the jokes are just spoken so quickly that if you don't read them, you, you'll miss them. Um and you'll miss little things that characters say, and they all kind of add up in the end. But this season was, I mean, it was just as funny as usual. I was still laughing out loud, even though I felt like it was a little bit more harsh than usual. I felt myself kind of like uh, feeling gross for laughing at some of the things that I normally would just laugh at on this show. The characters are just getting worse and worse as the show goes on, in the same way that Walt was getting worse and worse in Breaking Bad, just becoming just despicable. I mean, they're just despicable people. They're some of the worst people that I've ever seen on TV, the characters on V, but that's what makes it so funny, um, especially because they're in these high-power positions. Congressman, there's a simple and easy solution to the homeless problem. Pass mandatory sentencing laws for vagrancy. Then these unfortunates will finally have a home. 
my prisons. Hey, look, I hate the homeless as much as any librarian. I mean, that's why God created Sub-Zero Winters in the Third Rail, but the chances of me pushing for any tax incentives for these private hooskows is about as likely as what, Will? It's me walking out of a bar with less than ten types of semen in my hair. Sir, go in there. I know I don't have an appointment, but what I have to say okay. is... Holy okay. shit, I can't believe you're actually showing that camel snatch you call a face in D.C. You're about as welcome here as Jerry Sandusky at an open call for Oliver. But I just found myself getting lost. I, the storyline to me were just not adding up for some reason like something big would happen and then a plot would change between episodes and I was wondering like well how much time has changed like what's what's gone on here why did this happen it didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me um, and the end goal of the season just I felt like we didn't really go anywhere this season nothing really happened that was of note like when the series kind of wraps up I feel like season six will be one that will be easily forgotten I mean the biggest thing that happens is Selena writes a book and she's spending the entire season trying to get her presidential library done, which just, you know, seems kind of silly and boring. And it, there are some funny jokes that come out of that. But uh, I don't know. I just felt like, again, it was kind of anticlimactic this year. Now, seeing where Jonah Ryan goes is really interesting. Seeing where Dan's career went was really well done. I think Dan was a better character this season than he has been uh, throughout the entire series. But... Um, and they also gave Gary a little bit more to do this season than he usually has to do. We we got to know him a little bit more than we have. Um, because the thing with the, the Veep characters is most of them are pretty two-dimensional. I mean, these are not deep people, and that's by design. Uh, they're, they're, they're like uh, cartoons, and we see them just as bad as they can possibly be. We really don't see human moments between these characters, and that's, you know, kind of the point of the show. Um, but they did kind of deepen uh, Gary a little bit more this year, which I thought— was uh, was well done. But I just felt like Anna uh, Klumsky, who plays Amy, was underused this season. We hardly ever saw her. And to me, she's like the best part of the cast. She is just, uh, you know, so raw and her character is so kind of sad, but also admirable at the same time in her dedication. And she's ruthless and she's just very interesting. And we didn't really get to see her very much. I'm not sure what the story behind uh, that was, but just felt like there were episodes where she almost didn't appear at all or she'd just have a couple lines and that was it, where she's usually uh, Selena's right-hand woman. So, I don't know. Hopefully next year Anna Klumsky will be back to being used a little bit more often. But the show is coming back, and they did set it up at the end to be uh, kind of an interesting— uh, we can we can see where this goes, and we can see this show kind of finally wrapping up in a place that would be satisfying. But, yeah, I don't know. I just found myself getting lost, uh, and I did not think that the storylines were— uh, all that interesting this year. I don't know. It just didn't seem. I, I wasn't as engaged or as excited about every episode of Veep as I usually am. It still heads and tails, um, uh, you know, above most comedies, just because the actors are so good and the writing is so sharp and snappy. Uh, but uh, for Veep standards, I think this was uh, a little bit of a lesser season. But season six and all seasons of Veep are now uh, streaming on HBO Now and HBO Go. So check them out. It's uh, it's a hilarious show. If you like dark comedy, if you like unlikable characters um, in the vein of Seinfeld, but like way worse. It is just one of those shows that you'll find yourself wondering, what is wrong with me? Why am I laughing at this? Because the jokes are just, they're so wrong and so bad. And they're like jokes you can't even repeat. Like you can't even tell your friends about the jokes. Um, because if you heard saying these jokes out loud, you will, you, you may be arrested, to be honest with you. But Veep continues to be one of HBO's, you know, most popular and, and most notable shows. I want a library. <sighs> I guess I could give up the gift wrapping room. No, no, no. I want a goddamn, look at the size of my dick, bring history to life, presidential library. Mm -hmm. I'm the only living president who doesn't have one. And you want to know why that is? Because you served less than one year? No. 
because nobody gives me any respect. I was a two-term senator. I was a congresswoman. A mother. No. I was the first woman vice president. And America cannot forget that. Never forget. Oh, sorry, that's the Holocaust. Totally forgot. I need a monument to Selena Meyer. An institution. Selena Meyer belongs in an institution. I want you to start lining up architects. I want to talk to every Tom, Dick, and Geary out there. Maybe a female candidate. Well, we're not redoing a kitchen here, you know. And we need to tell them that the Kennedy Library is a reference point because, you know, he was also a part-termer. Right. One other show that I have loved since it was on and was a little bit cooler on this season is FX's Fargo. Uh, it just wrapped its third season. Could be its final season. We're not sure. Uh, Noah Hawley, the uh, creator of Fargo and showrunner, has uh, kind of been coy about whether or not the show's going to come back. We know what else is there. What other stories are there to tell? That's kind of the way he put it. Um, I think there are like unlimited stories to tell in the Fargo universe, and he's kind of proven that. That he's the guy really to take that mantle. But, uh, you know, you can't, uh, once again, if, if a guy's not inspired, then a guy's not inspired. And these days in peak TV, they can they can take the chance and be able to do that, especially because he also has Legion going on. But season three of Fargo, still very good. I'm not going to say it wasn't very good. Like, I did find myself gripped by, you know, pretty much every episode this season. But of the seasons of the show, definitely my least favorite of all of them, and probably by a good margin. But once again, that's like... I mean, that, that's not fair to, to just say that out of context because the first two seasons of Fargo were two of the best seasons of any show that I have ever seen. Um, as I've said before on this show, Fargo is my favorite show on TV. Um, I don't think there's any show better or more interesting than it just uh, as a complete package. The stories are so interesting. The characters are so well done. The writing's great. Uh, and I just I love watching the show. It, it just mixes humor and drama and action and horrible violence all in such a way that no other shows really are able to do. But season three was a dip for me, mostly because uh, the villain, I think, was the weakest villain that they've ever done on the show. And that's a huge part of this series. VM Varga is the the new villain in the new uh, season of, of Fargo. And uh, he's played by David Thewlis, who you've seen in stuff. If you look him up, you'll know him immediately. He's like one of the go-to British character actors, and he he's very good. He's good at this part. Like he's so slimy, nasty. He's like this bulimic, nightmarish um, investor that will also kill you if you step out of line. So he's just he's just a bad human being all along or all around. But he doesn't really feel like a human being. He almost feels otherworldly. Everything from his horrible teeth to the weird turns of phrase that he uses. That he just he doesn't feel like a real guy. Like he doesn't feel like a guy who sits like at home and watches TV or does something fun, you know, or has a meaningful interaction with another human being if he's not ordering them around. So to me, it took a little bit away from the great villains that this show has had. The Gerhardt family from season two, uh, I thought were so were just fantastic to watch. The whole family was so enjoyable. Um, and Mike Milligan, who was who was great, maybe, um, you know, one of the best characters that the show has ever produced. And obviously, you know, Billy Bob Thornton's character, uh, from the first season was one of the best villains that's ever been on TV. So they've set the bar high there, and I just feel like this year it went down a little bit because he didn't feel quite as real. He just he kind of felt fake, like he felt like a straw man, I guess. Um, and the characters, all of them really, to me, kind of felt that way, except for uh, Ewan McGregor's two characters that he played. He played these brothers. One of them's a rich, uh, successful parking lot magnate in Minnesota. The other one is this uh, broke and uh, morally shaky parole officer 
Um, and he, he plays them both, and he played them both so well. I think Ewan McGregor's destined to win an Emmy this year for the uh, dual performance that he did. When I first heard that he was going to be playing twin brothers, I thought it kind of sounded stupid. Um, and, you know, like, why do that? Why not just have him have another guy play his brother? Why do they have to be twins? Uh, but it, it really it really did work well, and he did great work, and he separated both characters um, and had you know highlight moments for both of them. So um, I, I have to really commend his acting. But mostly, like I said, I, I felt like the characters in this season of the show versus other seasons just existed to kind of lug plot points from A to B, um, not so much as to be real people, which is one of the great things about Fargo. The, the characters usually do feel real, especially the police characters. And I don't know, I just didn't think Gloria, played by the great Carrie Coon, felt quite as well-rounded. And I didn't find myself caring about her as much um, as I did the other police officers in the other seasons. And that's mostly because, you know, she was trying to take down these two brothers played by Ewan McGregor, and I found myself caring more about them than her. So I, like, wanted them to, you know, kind of get away with it and, and continue on with their lives because I, I liked them a little bit more than I liked her. Um, I did love Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She played uh, a part in the show that uh, ended up being kind of like the ultimate badass of the season. Um and who started out on the show like as you didn't know if she was going to be a bad guy or a good guy, uh, but ended up really being somebody that you rooted for. So I thought she was fantastic. I did think Carrie Coon was really good in the part. Her acting was great. I just didn't think the character was was you know nearly as good. And maybe that's because I've been watching her on Leftovers where she played Nora, who's just such a well-rounded, fascinating character to watch. Somebody that I felt like I really knew before it was over. But here, you know, you just don't have as much time and uh, the writing wasn't quite up to that kind of level in terms of character development. But I do think Ewan McGregor and uh, Carrie Coon and Mary Elizabeth Winstead will be uh, likely nominated for Emmys. Um, but I do think McGregor should win for limited series lead actor because, again, this show is considered a limited series, not a not a regular drama series. Uh, but it's still it's fascinating TV. The season was still fascinating, and I would recommend you watch it if you've kept up with the first two seasons of Fargo. You know, watch it because it's it's it is fun to see, and you do see some callbacks to the first couple seasons, especially in one big character um, who comes in late in the third season. But th- to me, there weren't enough connections to the other seasons for my taste. It felt kind of like it existed on its own, whereas the first two seasons were definitely tied to each other in a lot of meaningful ways. And the storyline to me in this one just wasn't nearly as mysterious or sweeping, and the questions were very um, just unanswered in an unsatisfying way, I think, at the end of the day. So Fargo Season 3, I was just a little bit cool on, but it's still you know, still my favorite show, and if they come back with a new season, I'll definitely be there to watch it on opening night. Uh, but the first three seasons of Fargo are uh, streaming for you on FX Now. I don't remember if anybody else has picked these up yet. I, I want to say Hulu had the first season of Fargo for a while, but I don't know if they've picked up the first couple seasons or not. So uh, check around for it. But those first two seasons of Fargo, uh, pick them up and watch them because they are just two of the best seasons of TV I've ever seen. 85% of the world's wealth is controlled by 1% of the population. What do you think is going to happen when those people wake up and realize you've got all their money? Hey, I just charge for parking. Oh, you think they're going to ask questions when they come with their pitchforks and their torches? You live in a mansion. You drive a $90,000 car. It's a lease through the company. Look at me. This is a $200 suit. I wear a second-hand tie, a fly couch. Not because I can't afford first, because I'm smart. So look at you. 
and look at me and tell me who's the richer. I feel like this is a trick question. There's an accounting coming, Mr. Stussy. And you know I'm right. Mongol hordes descending. What are you doing to insulate yourself and your family? You think you're rich. You've no idea what rich means. All right, to wrap things up, let me uh, send you out the door with two movies that are streaming now on Netflix and Amazon that you may not have seen. First off, on Netflix right now, one of my favorite crime thrillers ever produced, 2007's Zodiac, which is all about the hunt for the Zodiac Killer um, in San Francisco in the 1960s and 70s. And uh, this movie you know, is near and dear to my heart because it does involve a reporter as its star character, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, who works at the San Francisco is it the San Francisco Chronicle? Can't remember the name of their newspaper, but he's a reporter who works at the paper, and he was a guy who was instrumental in trying to track down who the Zodiac killer was, real life killer that was never caught. And uh, also in this movie, Robert Downey Jr. I think gives the best performance of his career. Um, and you've also got great work from Mark Ruffalo in this film as well. It's a, it's a, just a dark noirish. Um, film that's in the vein of Seven, which was directed by David Fincher, who also directed Zodiac. Um, and just a, one of those movies that t- flew under the radar for whatever reason. I, I still don't hear a lot of people talking about this one, but this is as good as anything David Fincher has ever directed. I'm putting it right up there with Fight Club, with Seven, with the best work of his career. Uh, I think Zodiac is right there. So uh, check it out. It's about uh, a little more than two and a half hours long, so it's a long one, but, man, worth every second. Fascinating movie. If you like crime detective thrillers, um, definitely check this one out. Zodiac from 2007 right now on Netflix. And on Amazon, last year's Best Picture winner, Moonlight from 2016. Give this one a watch. I reviewed it in full in a previous episode. If you want to hear that review, um, go and check it out. But um, I, I told you it was my pick for the best movie of last year, and when it won the Oscar, I was thrilled to see that it had been honored by the Academy. So uh, well worth your time. Check it out on Amazon right now, Moonlight from 2016. Just a beautiful movie about uh, a really a beautiful character, one of my favorite characters that I can remember from recent memory in a movie and a guy that I, I just wanted to I, I just wanted to spend time with him. I wanted to hang out with him. Um, I felt like I got him, you know, at the end of the day. So that right now is streaming on Amazon Prime Video. All right, that's going to do it for this month's edition of the Stream Police. Check us out at OverdueReview.com, also on YouTube. Go to our Overdue Review channel. I'm continuing my James Bond rewatch series where I'm trying to go back and rewatch all the James Bond movies and do a little video review of them. And I put up uh, a good, solid, about 13-minute deep dive review into Octopussy. That's the latest one I have done. And uh, I, I really uh, I hope you'll go up there and check it out. Subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Trying to do a little bit more video there for you, my friend. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Andy, for uh, your invaluable help and in keeping us in position in the world of music. Uh, you can see his album reviews at Overdue Review. You can also read my movie reviews up there at the website as well. Thank you very much for listening. Please pass it along to your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell them all. Um, to check out the Stream Police. Until next time, my friend, stream on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. 